When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Outkick 360 is back on this Friday with the Tennessee Power Hour. Alongside Chad Withrow, I'm Jonathan Hutton. Paul Koharski joins us in 30 minutes live from Titans training camp over at St. Thomas Sports Park. But every Friday at this time, we check in live in Knoxville. Brent Hubbs, VolQuest.com. The VolQuest Power Hour is where we start. Brent, we appreciate the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you guys are doing well and everybody's staying uh, somewhat as cool or as cool as they can be in this weather right now. Welcome to August. Yeah, absolutely. And welcome to the new SEC. Oklahoma and Texas joining the SEC. We, we discussed the, the premise of it last week. Now we know it is official. The SEC voting that through 14-0, the unanimous vote, as, as we expected that would be the case. Uh, beyond that, the question now is, are they entering in 2025, or can they actually get out of the Big 12 agreement and join the conference earlier? Have you heard anything on that? Well, I think that's still up in the air. I, obviously, the, the last date that they would start is 25-26. Um, is there a chance they could get out early? We'll, we'll see where the Big 12 is. I think the Big 12 is in an uh, interesting spot because they've got a TV deal uh, up for negotiation, and if you're the Big 12, then you've got to go to the T. You've got to go to the TV market with trying to get a TV deal with a full conference. So um, when are they going to announce somebody, and and do they want to have those people and try to have somebody in place before that new D- TV deal kicks in in, in 25? So I, I don't think it's going to. I don't think there's any chance that it's going to happen next year or, or even 23. I think the earliest could be 24. Um, just if it gets so uncomfortable with the Big 12 and, and those two teams that you know they decide, hey, let's negotiate a parting ways type deal and, and go from there. But um, I, I don't see it happening. Some people speculated it could happen as early as next year. There's no way. I don't see any way that happens. And I don't see it happening in 23. I think 24 would be the earliest. Brent, when you threaten to sue the biggest media power in your sport, and that is ESPN, um, and you're the Big 12, are you basically announcing your own death as a conference? Because that seems like the point of no return uh, with, the ES- with ESPN being an option, and ESPN needs to be an option for any major conference uh, to survive. What did you make of, of that cease and desist from, uh, from the Big 12 and the message they're sending to, the SE- or to, to, excuse me, to ESPN? Well, I mean, you know, that's been a really interesting relationship with, with the Big 12 and ESPN. I mean, you know, the Big 12's, TV stuff is, is done with Fox. You know, they're they're not football wise. They're not really haven't been as closely affiliated with with ESPN recently. They've had some some issues there. But look, the Big Twelve knows their survival um, and, and their chance to grow their conference hinges on on Texas and Oklahoma being a part of the conference, and and they're not. And they clearly feel like part of the reason why they're not is because ESPN was involved in brokering this deal to the SEC are trying to get them to another conference. And um, 
that, you know, Bob Bowlesby's obviously angry and the member institutions are angry. There's no doubt when you hear comments made by presidents of other schools, ADs of other schools, um, you know, that nobody's happy with this move. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, you know, how, how much of this are they going to air publicly? How much is this going to go down this road? Or is this just a letter that says, Hey, stay out of this. And, and that's it. Or does it become a, a bigger story? But, um, it, clearly some emotions were involved in, in sending that letter and releasing that letter to a media outlet. So, Brent, let's talk balls on the field, uh, which will start uh, the, with next week with the start of, of fall camp. And Evolve Quest, you guys were writing about uh, the need for transfers to make an immediate impact and the probable appearance of transfers in the two deep for Tennessee to start fall camp. Who are some of those guys that, that you see as must-haves in terms of production for Tennessee that they, that they brought in as transfers? Well, I think it starts at linebacker and on the defensive line. Um, when, when you talk about uh, Tremblay from USC and, and you talk about Terry from, from Kansas, with what they've lost on the defensive line, they need immediate help there. They need some veteran help there to, to get them going, and, and I think those two guys are important. And then when you talk about losing Henry T and you talk about losing Crouch, the two guys who ate up the most snaps for you a year ago at linebacker, um, you, you need um, the, 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 the kid from Texas, Williams, you need him to come, or Mitchell, you need him to come in and be a huge factor right out of the gate. He needs to be a starter. Now, um, uh, Munden from Michigan, you know, the, he's undersized. He may not be as an immediate factor, but – one would think he's got a chance to be in the two deep, given their lack of depth there. And then I think the other thing is when you talk about the two corners who have transferred in from other SEC schools, that's going to create some real depth and some real competition at that spot, uh, at the corner spot, where they really didn't have any in the spring. So I think you're talking about the defensive side of the ball, outside of Joe you know, Milton, um, you know, particularly at quarterback and where, where that competition factors. Those defensive guys are all, I think, going to be in the two deep and, and are going to be factors to helping Tennessee on the field. I mean, this defense, I'm not saying they're going to be good, but this defense can look a significantly different than what they look like in the spring because of what they brought in in the transfer portal. Brent Hubs, VolQuest.com with us. Brent, the, the football program hosting a cookout tomorrow. Uh, it goes without saying it's a big recruiting weekend for Heupel. A number of highly recruited uh, players will be in attendance for this. What, what's the significance? What's the importance for Heupel on this on this particular weekend? Well, it's your last time uh, to, to, to get a guy and get face-to-face with a guy and spend some real quality time with them. When guys come in on unofficial visits on game days, it's hard to, to really spend any time with them. This is going to be a, a bit of a laid-back setting, obviously, and there's not going to be the hype surrounding a game when a kid comes in. A kid's not going to come in um, – fresh off his high school game at you know midnight or get there at two or three in the morning so th- this is going to be an opportunity to uh, I guess borrow an old good southern term to fellowship if you will mm-hmm. uh, you know the, 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 to, it, it'll be it'll be more than just taking a tour and you know showing the atmosphere in the stadium this will be some real uh, an opportunity to really sit down and, and talk to coaches and um, there'll be a good number of guys in I don't think it's going to be be just some good number and that's a good thing because that gives you more time uh, to spend with players and there'll be guys in from the class of 22 23 and 24 as well 
Um, some of the kids can't make it in that, that Tennessee would like to have in because they've got a scrimmage tonight or, you know, they've got something going on with their high school team and their high school coaches kind of said, you know what, enough's enough with this deal. Um, you guys have traveled around all summer. I need you with, with me, um, you know, and, and focused on your season. So th- there'll be some kids in town uh, of note, a um, couple of kids in the mid-state, you know, that uh, the Bustle kid's supposed to be in town, Aiden Bustle and um, Nathan Robinson uh, is, is from Greenbrier High School, supposed to be in town as well. And we'll see who else shows up and, and comes in. Some Georgia kids may come up. But uh, it's one more chance to get on campus and, and visit with guys and sit down and relax with them. And, and they're going to do it in the middle of the afternoon so nobody's getting home at, you know, 4 in the morning or anything crazy like that. They've given themselves a chance to get some kids from outside of the state in town as well. And while we, we certainly hope that this is not the case, who knows with the way these COVID protocols are going back and forth, where we're headed into the fall, you know, with the in-person visits, high schools uh, allowing certain people on campuses for game. I mean, again, we saw it last fall. Who knows what's about to happen here with the in-person visits? This could be, I mean, at least if I'm leading a team behind the scenes, I'm saying we need to make a lasting impression in person because who knows where we're headed a month from now. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, you, you have to factor that in and, and think about that. And, you know, nobody wants to go down that road and have that thought, but you never know what the NCAA is is going to do. Uh, I still contend the NCAA made a mistake in the spring. I think they should have let coaches go out on the road in the spring and, and go to high schools and watch kids go through spring practice for evaluations and, and that type of thing because the window was there to do it at that point. Um, are they going to let them out the, you know, this fall? I don't know. Are they going to let kids take visits? I mean, it's all scheduled to, but you're right. It could change at any point. So you want to get as many guys, listen, w- whether there's COVID or there's not COVID or, or whatever, you will, anytime there's an opportunity to bring a player on campus, you want to get somebody on your campus, whether it's an official visit or an unofficial. You cannot do official visits this weekend or this week, but you can do unofficial visits, and schools want as many kids in town as they can get in town. And um, Tennessee, I think, is going to have a decent number. And, and um, we'll see what the results of that, if there's anything real positive coming out of these visits this weekend. Brent, I want to talk about the money position. I'm not talking about the cute nickname for a nickel on, on defense. I'm talking <laughs> about the quarterback. And uh, oh, okay. Vols fans want to know, um, Joe Milton is the guy that everyone keeps hearing about his physical prowess. I know there's mm-hmm. no way to know without him being out there, you know, playing with teammates and, and running the offense. But just looking at the quarterback position right now, uh, Harrison Bailey, how much has he stepped up this offseason from a leadership perspective? And where do you see things at, at this point as we get ready for camp next week between all the quarterbacks? Well, I mean, I think Harrison Bailey has tried to step up and be a leader. Um, I, think, I think Joe Milton has certainly gone in and tried to earn his respect through his actions and led as well. But Harrison Bailey knows everybody on this team better than Joe Milton. And we saw, twi- you know, pictures tweeted out. Harrison Bailey took some offensive linemen to dinner and um, all of those things that, that you want to try to do to create that chemistry and create that relationship there. And I think Harrison Bailey's done a good job of that. Both those guys have thrown to any receiver who's wanted to catch a ball. Receivers have caught pa- passes from everybody in that room. Uh, but it certainly feels like this thing's going to head down the path of a of a Joe Milton, Harrison Bailey, you know, quarterback battle. Now we'll see how that turns out and if something else happens, but the inconsistencies of Brian Maurer makes it hard for me to see him being, um, you know, a month long factor in that race. I think he'll certainly have his moments. 
but for him to be in that race, it, it's going to have to be – he's going to have to be really consistent right out of the gate, much more consistent than he's been. I think with Milton, he's got all the tools, and there's a lot of hype, as there always is with the new guys in town. Uh, but it goes back to um, a- execution on the practice field, particularly in seven-on-seven and eleven-on-eleven settings, not for, not routes versus air and, and not one-on-ones. It's, it's how do you deliver the football in this offensive scheme uh, and, and how accurate are you with that. Josh Heupel's made it very clear. Reps are to be earned. Uh, they'll split them at the start, and then uh, they'll whittle from there. And, and the guys who perform the best will get more reps, and the guys uh, who struggle will lose reps. And so – I think you're going to have a very heated competition uh, starting on Wednesday with, with, with guys probably feeling a little bit of pressure to go out and try to win it. We'll see how both those guys handle that pressure as well. How about Tennessee last night, Brent? Two first-rounders uh, for the basketball program. Ernie and Bernie, the last time we saw that, I don't know what the NBA ratings were for the NBA draft. I don't know what they were locally in Knoxville either, for that matter. Uh, but the historical significance of what Tennessee did as a program, and really the SEC, six teams in the SEC represented in the first round, remarkable when, when we think back just four or five years ago where this conference was in that sport. Well, and, and that's you're exactly right. And, and the, re, the result of that draft last night is a result of the commitment that schools in this league have made to basketball. Commitment with coaches that have been hired, um, the improvement there, commitment with scheduling, uh, the better schedules that, that teams are playing to help guys develop more, uh, and the recruiting that they've gone out and done and, and, and gone against. It's not just Kentucky trying to beat out the Carolinas and Dukes for players. You've got other schools, you know, Tennessee, obviously, Florida, other schools are in there and heavily involved and, and have recruited well. So uh, it, it's a credit to uh, something Rick Barnes has talked about a good bit the last few years, and that is um, the, 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 the investment in, into basketball. And uh, it's certainly there in this league. As for Tennessee, yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a calling card. I know there's some disappointment with Keon Johnson falling in the draft uh, the last couple of weeks from where some people had him projected. But you're talking about, as you mentioned, you got to go back to Menard King and Ernie Grunfeld since Tennessee's had two first-round picks. And um, – I think I don't want to say that's going to be the mainstay for Tennessee, but I think you're going to see and hear Tennessee's name in the NBA draft much more often in the coming years than you've had heard it previously, which is a credit to what Tennessee's doing on the recruiting trail and their development under Rick Barnes. Brent, you guys had a great stat at VolQuest uh, this morning. Uh, over 21 years, Tennessee had three first-round NBA picks leading up to Grant Williams in 2019. Now in three years, they've had three first-round picks, uh, which is, uh, again, a testament to the talent Rick Barnes is bringing in. Uh, but that talent in Keon Johnson, uh, a bit disappointing. I, I think a lot of projections had him in, in the lottery, and he goes 21st. He ends up on a good team with a trade to, to the Clippers. Um, but d- do you think that Keon Johnson is, is probably a little bit disappointed today that he wasn't drafted higher? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, I, you know, when you, when you hear lottery pick, lottery pick, lottery pick for – two and a half, three months, um, and then, you know, the night of the draft, you're not going that high. It has to be a bit disappointing. I know he's excited about starting his career. He became a millionaire last night, so it's, you know, it's not the, you know, it's not like he had the worst night of anybody out there. But, um, yeah, I think his expectation when he decided not to come back, which was his plan all along, uh, but, you know, when he was in all those early mock drafts, I think his expectation was to be drafted higher I think if you look at the draft last night, the one thing that stands out, NBA teams put a premium on guys' ability to shoot the basketball. 
Um, and I think that for Keon Johnson, his greatest strength to the Clippers out of the gate is going to be his ability to play defense. Uh, and then, you know, he's going to have to develop his offensive game even more. He's shown flashes of it at Tennessee, but his handle's got to get a little tighter and he's going to have to shoot the ball uh, with, with more consistency because I think the NBA is putting a premium on guys being able to shoot the basketball. And um, I think that's part of the reason why you saw some people get drafted ahead of Keon Johnson last night. That to me was a little bit surprising, but I think it's one of those years where the NBA says, hey, we're looking for shooters. And, and that, that was kind of the focal point. More so even than just the raw score, I think they're looking for shooters. Some guys were taken higher who, who are prolific shooters more than they are what I would consider a score or even an all-around player. Well, and Jaden Springer goes 28 to the 76ers. He is a better shooter than Keon Johnson. Brent, he seems like a guy who is ready to go in and contribute something offensively with his offensive skill set right away. The 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 ceiling for him, probably not as high as Keon Johnson with the improvement and, and, and the leaps he could make. Uh, but what do you think about Jaden Springer to the 76ers, and do you agree that he's a guy that could come in and, and do some things offensively? Well, I, I mean, I think he's a guy who could come in and, and certainly score in, in some bunches for you. I think the long term, the biggest thing with Jaden is what, what position is he going to play? You know, is he going to play point? Is he going to play two? What, what, where is he going to play in the NBA? And I know those – Positions are a little bit muddled in the NBA in, in some regards, but um, what's he going to you know what's he going to do? Um, what what what's he going to be? Is he going to be a point guard? I think ultimately for longevity, that's what he needs to be and what he will be in the NBA. Uh, and if that's the case, then that's going to be some of his development moving forward. But you're right; he's going to be able to come in, I think, and and can get somebody you know six or eight points in a hurry because he he can get going like that. Uh, but for, for a guy who's going to play and, and go a lot of, a ton of minutes, uh, you know, I, I think that he's going to have to become more of a point guard in the NBA than anything else. Brent, I, I don't know uh, if you guys know exactly how much practice you're going to get to see this year, but I am curious, just from your perspective, when you get out to the practice field, who is the coach that you're really interested in? Not Josh Heupel, but maybe an assistant coach that you're really interested in seeing work uh, on the practice field. Uh, in fall camp, and, and maybe it's because the position group that they're leading, you're very interested in seeing them work, but is there one coach specifically that you're really interested in watching? Wow, um, it's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, but right off the top of my head, offensively, uh, I think Cody Burns for two reasons. One, I think he's, he's a young coach, obviously, um, and, and the receivers are so important in this offensive system. Josh Heupel had five receivers average over um, 13 and a half yards a reception a year ago at, at Central Florida. Tennessee had two receivers average that. So this is about this is a receiver friendly offense, but your receivers have to go out and make plays. They've got to execute. Quarterback obviously has to play well, but how do the receivers really adapt to this system? Um, and, and how does Cody Burns develop those guys? So I, I think that's particularly when you talk about some of the young guys he's got on, on the roster, Hyatt, who, who showed flashes. But now you're talking about you know Callaway, Holiday. How did those guys factor in who were not big factors in, in, the, in the receiving core a, a year ago? So offensively, it would be that. Defensively, I know enough about Willie Martinez and Rodney Garner because of their experience in the SEC and having covered them before. I know what they, I know what they are as, as position coaches. Uh, so I, I would probably say – um, uh, Gene Mary at linebacker, just because he's got a couple new bodies there. He doesn't have a lot of depth. 
Uh, we're going to see him. What can he do with Jeremy Banks, who was limited in the spring, Roman Harrison, who was limited in the spring? What does that linebacker group look like in terms of being able to execute this defense? So those would be one guy on each side of the ball. Brent, last week we you gave great perspective and thoughts on the, the Super Conference expansion. Uh, and I'd like to end our conversation this week there. Uh, as the SEC moves to 16 teams, I know you don't believe that's where they're stopping. You say 2024 is where we could end up. That's what you said last week. And just over the last week of talking with coaches and former players and just those in your, in your circle at VolQuest, what's the best idea you've heard? What makes the most logistical sense and business sense over the last seven days of pondering where we're headed? Well, I mean, if they are going to continue to expand, and and part of my rationale for that is if they're going to do these pod, whatever they call, whatever they're going to call them, pods or or whatever, that that would allow for easier expansion. I think the quickest thing to do, and the simplest thing to do for the SEC is, is to do is you know if you stop where you are right now, you would do divisions. You would move Missouri to the west, bring Auburn, Alabama to the east. And you keep your some of your traditional rivalries that are, are such an integral part of the SEC with its fan base. When you talk about Auburn, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, um, some of those games like that, you, you know, you want to keep intact. Um, but we'll see. I, I think if they go pods, to me, that's another indication that they're going to expand more. Um, I think 20 teams would, would be kind of the next point um, because that keeps everything even in a pod system. Um, and, and the question then is, who do you go after? Um, where's the ACC? I think it's pretty hard to get out of the ACC conference if you're a, a member of that league. And, and look, conferences around the country are going to be very protective, right? I mean, th- this was – I think the Big 12 certainly was blindsided in this deal. Um, I, I don't think they knew what was coming. So I can promise you there's been a lot more conversations taking place with Big Ten uh, commissioner talking to, to Big Ten schools and – you know, commissioner of the ACC talking to ACC schools so that nobody gets caught um, with their with their pants down. But um, I, I, you know, I agree with Dabo Sweeney. I think we're moving closer and closer towards a super conference world, and uh, there'll be baby steps in that along the way. I don't know that it's going to ever be 35 or 40 teams, uh, but I do think it's going to be bigger than 16 based on everybody you talk to. There's just so much money involved, and, and the kind of crumbling of the NCAA. Um, makes you feel like somebody's going to take the reins on this thing and run with it. And I think the SEC is trying to do that uh, first and foremost, which is why they're, they've gone after and gotten Texas and Oklahoma to join the SEC. Final minute and a half here. Has Tennessee stopped paying attorney's fees yet? Nope, they have not. Um, I had that dollar figure in the war room. The month of June was, I think they spent um, – $90,000, almost $91,000 in the month of June. Uh, it was 90720 and their total now is spent since November of last year, $756,593.90 uh, to handle an internal investigation by, by an outside legal team. Um, so you, you, it, it, it appears to not be stopping um, at this point. So when we get into the middle of August, we'll find out how much money they spent in uh, July. They actually spent about thirteen dollars or $14,000 more in the month of June than they did in the month of May. I thought it was going to trickle down smaller in numbers, but it, it kicked back up. So 
Uh, maybe that's because they're trying to get some stuff finalized to get turned into the NCAA. I'm not sure, but they are continuing to pay the legal firm out of Kansas City. Brent, help talk, talk me off the ledge here uh, with Tennessee in, in regards to this. How am I not supposed to think that this is yet another example of Tennessee standing in their own way every day that passes that they don't just release a small punishment to the NCAA and the SEC and be done with it, given the current state of the NCAA? This seems to me like a huge misstep by everyone at the university that this continues. And every day it happens, I grow angrier by the minute that they haven't released their own self-imposed punishment. Well, what's interesting is by by delaying things and being slow, that they may have an opportunity to ease their punishment. If you were to self-impose something in May or June before uh, the, the, the court rulings on the NCAA and, and Mark Emmerich coming out basically saying, you know, we're going to get power back to the, to the conferences and, and that type of thing, I, I mean, what you self-impose in August or early September – maybe a, a smaller scale than what you would have done in June when you felt like the NCAA was going to have some juice here. I, I think the question is, you know, where's the committee of infractions in the NCAA? How, how legit is that going to be in the next six, eight months? Um, where is that going? What direction is that taking? You know, and it, it, do, you, do you have to, if you're Tennessee, have to deal more with Greg Sankey at the conference level on this with a punishment than you even do the NCAA. I think those are some questions that you have to have right now as you wrap this thing up. And uh, we'll see. I, I, I will not be shocked if Tennessee – I will not be surprised – shocked is probably a better word – if Tennessee is not wrapping something up here in the next 45 days. Uh, but if they don't, I won't completely be stunned either. Uh, I just think, as we've talked about on the show a number of times, enough's enough at some point. I mean – you fired everybody, and you, you had your reasons for firing everybody. What are you still looking for? Let it go and, and be done with it. And, and I think Tennessee maybe is getting closer to that than, than even it would appear at this point, even though they're still paying the legal fees. But what do, you, what do you tell the NCAA? What does the NCAA tell you? How much authority do you feel like they're going to have in punishing something? Exactly. Um, you know, that compared to what you thought they were going to have the power to punish in May or June when you were trying to get that thing wrapped up. The storyline continues. Brent Hubbs of AllQuest.com. It's like Groundhog Day. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and those bills continue. Uh, they'll get to a million. They'll get to a million oh, absolutely. before it's all said absolutely. and done. Absolutely. $756,593.90. Oh. Insane. Um, it, gives me, it gives me a migraine, Brent. Also known as Austin Price's salary uh, at AllQuest. <laughs> and hey, Maybe, and maybe not, a settlement for Jeremy Pruitt somewhere down the line. We'll have to wait and see what happens there, too. Uh, I, Chad, your thoughts? That's, that's a definite. Uh, I think there's definitely going to be some sort of settlement money, especially now that you know, you're arguing you had to fire Jeremy Pruitt because of NCAA violations, and now the NCAA doesn't matter. So Jeremy Pruitt's in there thinking, so why was I fired if, if the NCAA no longer matters? Crazy. Hubs, thank you, man, as always. Great, uh, great stuff, and uh, we, we love VolQuest and, and you joining us each and every Friday. Tell Austin we said hello, and next week, practice reports. 
Yep, we'll do it. So uh, Tennessee will have a couple under their belt by the time we three under their belt by the time we talk next week. So we'll catch up with you guys next Friday. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate Brent it. has been our guest. The Excellent best. report there. Again, the Chad, just to reiterate, seven hundred fifty-six thousand five hundred ninety-three dollars and ninety cents on an investigation that's practically meaningless now because the NCAA doesn't have the power or authority that it had a year ago. It's so. a charade. And in, in, in doing so, they're self-imposing recruiting sanctions against themselves by allowing this dark cloud to hang over them and to let people to recruit against them. By the way, as we transition to uh, Paul Kuharski, there's a tie-in with the Vols today yes. in the Titans. And that's where we start yep. uh, with PK. Paul Kuharski joins us next live from Titans Training Camp on OutKick 360. Outkick 360's training camp update as we go live to Titans training camp alongside Chad Withrow. I'm Jonathan Hutton. Paul Koharski from the Titans practice facility. Practice wrapped up super early today. They reduced the practice time and several players were not out there. The practice overall lacked juice and energy. We'll get to those details in a moment. PK, once again, Looking great on a, a hot day in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Practice number three is a wrap. And practice number three includes details of a new coach for the Tennessee Titans. James Wilhoyt is now the kicker coach for the Tennessee Titans. A very casual, by the way, I had a helmet rack behind me right here until about uh, three minutes ago when the equipment guys came and dragged them in. So uh, it's a beautifully framed shot right now, uh, but it was even more beautifully framed uh, just uh, three minutes ago. Um, Vrabel dropped this in response to a question about well, why the kickers didn't kick today. Um, you know, talked about not doing it every day, and then he, he dropped that they hired James Wilhoyt. I said, what's his title? He said, check the website. Check the website. He's not on the website. <laughs> uh, I, I said, you hired a kicker's coach, but not a kicker. Uh, he took that in good spirits, but didn't particularly answer. I, I think it's great that they yeah. hired James Wilhoyt, uh, <laughs> but I think he he needs somebody to work with uh, who's who's more competent than the two guys that they have out here. Um, and James Wilhoyt, by the way, called this. So I, I think this is great humility by Vrabel, because most of the time, if you see somebody tweet on October 29th, twenty twenty. Ryan Suckup left, and somebody else left, and the new places where they're doing better they have kicking coaches why don't the titans uh, a lot of coaches would scratch that guy off the potential list and instead of doing that uh the titans hired him so more power to james wilhoyt i said is he full-time and when vrabel was walking away he said well he's in here every night when i leave so i guess so um so i, I don't know why they can't just say he's the kicker coach and put him on the list of coaches that's on the bottom of the roster that we see every day I haven't, uh, haven't done that, but apparently he's here. Um, and in the piece I wrote and put out very quickly, I used the logo of uh, what James Wilhoyt kickingcamp.com or whatever it is, which I imagine now is functioning with uh, Wilhoyt family employees. So uh, and I, I agree with you, Paul. I think it's a, it's a great move by the Titans, and I'm a big fan of James Wilhoyt. But did Vrabel say when asked about what he would be doing, said that he's the guy that I bitch to when we miss kicks? Was that, a, was that a direct I, quote from Vrabel? Yes, yes. But I think he's being funny because I would hope he'd be bitching to Tucker McCann or Blake Highbill or 
I, I don't think Steven so. Gaskowski. I, I think you go to the coach in that setting. I don't think kickers are the ones you chew out when they miss a kick. That's not a very coach-to-kicker-like thing to do. Well, so now there's a middleman um, and, yeah. and the middleman. But again, give the middleman some more uh, products to work with. Again, you know, we talked about this on the, on the Shane Bowen scale. I don't think Shane Bowen got the level of grief that people wanted Shane Bowen to get because Shane Bowen was working with Jonathan Joseph and Wyatt Ray. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I hope if one of these guys wins the job, that James Wilhoit uh, is working with, you know, a, a guy who's an emerging star kicker in the NFL. Uh, I, I don't get the sense that one of these guys is going to be that. And I, I think he'll probably be working with Steven Goskowski, who's on the tail end of his career, but kicked well after things settled down last year and memorably not well before that. Paul, based on a response on Twitter, today was a lifeless practice by the Tennessee Titans. A, a, a number of players were held out of today's practice. I, I mentioned earlier it was reduced timing uh, this morning. A.J. Brown among them not there. And with A.J. not on the field, it was evident that this practice lacked, lacked a little juice, as you would term it. Juice. Um, and Vrabel basically admitted that, that um, they need um, – you know, after the first day that, that today was a carryover of yesterday, and yesterday wasn't a very good day. Uh, another couple fumbled snaps by Daniel Munyer. Um, just kind of imprecise, not very good play. I thought it lacked uh, lacked energy. And, you know, I kind of asked the question with A.J. Brown and other guys not out there. A.J. Brown, to me, is a guy that's bringing juice and energy right now. Um, and we've covered this territory before. I asked, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to bring energy. Um, with the guys who were sitting out, sitting out today, did people bring it? And Variable said, you bring the energy with the production. And, you know, it wasn't a particularly productive day. So that was, a, you know, his way of saying no to that question. Um, so, you know, uh, tomorrow he said they're going to work on third down. He, ho he hopes to see better things. They're installing some third down stuff today. Um, we'll work on it, probably walk it through this afternoon work on it tonight, come out tomorrow, hoping to have a good day heading into Sunday's off day and Monday, presumably in Pat. Um, I, I can't help but notice, and this might be unfair to Jackrabbit Jenkins, that's a guy who was out there today. I don't know how much he was out there in team, um, but it is out there at any rate. And I haven't heard him like vocally the way that I've uh, heard him and he was very present in the minicamp. That's a guy I, I feel like I'm expecting more energy from, uh, and, and we haven't seen it um, so far. So I, I don't know what the deal is there. Um, and another thing, Hut, that I think was important to note today, one of the better players in the first couple of days has been Breon Borders, which I think is encouraging. And he's had some of that feistiness, if not vocal energy. He certainly brought, brought energy with production, the way that Vrabel's talking about. But here's the thing thing that we didn't talk about with Breon Borders. Wednesday and Thursday were very heavy on the red zone. And it's a smart thing for Vrabel to start with because you want to limit pulled hamstrings and all of that stuff, right? And you do so with, um, or you help do so by asking guys to do less long running and less long explosive runs, right? And so um, that's a good way to start. And but today they put the ball down at the 20 yard line going the other way. Well, I didn't notice Breon Borders having any problems, but I would say Breon Borders, wouldn't you agree, is better equipped 
to defend 20 yards in because yeah. what's Breon Borders' deficiency? Speed. Speed. And so if you give him 80 yards to cover as opposed to 20 yards to cover, he's probably going to be better with 20 yards to cover. So I think Breon Borders deserves some buzz um, to this point, but I think with 80 yards to cover, he probably plays less well. Any rookie standouts to this point, Paul? Um, and and, and I, I realize, again, we're early in camp. Um, we, we, we've heard a lot about Racy McMath. Who, does he fit the bill based on what you've seen to start this camp? Who else comes to mind among the rookies that have joined this roster? You might have to remind me down the, down the road here. McMath has been good. He's not with the punt returners. Uh, which we'll get into in a minute because they like him so much as a gunner. Um, but I think he's been consistently good in this batch of receivers that we've been talking about, where Marcus Johnson has really, really shined. Um, Raidens is, you know, fully in the mix. They're, he's playing right and left. Everybody's uh, – all the, all the tackles really uh, – the high-ranking tackles are playing both sides because Luan hasn't been in any team periods yet, and he didn't do anything today, along with a lot of high-ranking guys. Um, and so then we get to uh, Fitzpatrick, who's had his moments. He's in that four-pack of wide receivers, I would say. I haven't noticed Monty Rice. It's hard at this stage to notice middle linebackers outside of uh, Evans, say, has broken up a couple of couple of passes, at least one. Um but uh, not seeing much of the middle linebackers at this stage. Hitting on Monday will be a bigger middle linebacker day. McMath, we talked about. Brady Breeze, I was talking about, joking with the guys about making a list of guys I haven't noticed one time so far. And Brady Breeze was one of them. And somebody said, you know, I haven't noticed Brady Breeze. Like, we should make sure he's here. Um, and then we saw him on the, on the sideline. But, you know, that's a third-team safety at this point, I, I think. Who did I miss? What about Molden? We, we have not discussed him in detail so far this week. Molden, I think, is the second-team nickel right now playing behind Chris Jackson. Um, and I haven't noticed him good or bad, but I think not noticing him bad is, is a good thing at this point. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say good or bad based on okay. what I've seen and not seen. Have, have we discussed Des Fitzpatrick? Yeah, Des Fitzpatrick's in that pack of four receivers that I think are very encouraging right now. Uh, Johnson, Chester Rogers, Fitzpatrick, and Westbrook Aquina. Westbrook Aquina talked yesterday, and I asked him, I don't know if we talked about it, about uh, all those drops in camp last year and maintaining the coach's faith despite them. He talked about it kind of as a case of the yips, you know, and, and that it was really encouraging that coaches saw something in him and kept the faith because he knows in a lot of situations he would have just been dismissed. Then he went out an individual today and dropped the pass right, right out of the gate, <laughs> kind of uh, – for old time memory's sake, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I think those four guys are very good. Here's the thing, Hut. Let's transition the punt returner. Yes. So I, I think those four receivers at this stage, very early, have set themselves kind of apart. But Cam Batson and Kinsey are in the mix for the roster because the three punt return candidates right now are Batson, Kinsey, and Rogers. So if Rodgers can separate himself and do well as the punt return candidate, he could differentiate himself from that four-pack. McMath, I don't know if he could catch punts or not, but he's not in the mix there because he's a gunner, right? He, he's going to probably make this team and be a very uh, key special teams guy as a, as a gunner, which is a crucial position. Yeah, 
the guy getting down the field to force a fair catch by a punter. Um, so right now, Vrabel, you know, and I was thinking, well, maybe those three guys are only there, you know, at the beginning where it doesn't mean much. And the other, other punt catching candidates are doing other things on special teams. Vrabel pretty much said those are the three guys for right now, which sure sounds like one of those three guys is going to make this team. Um, and it's a shame. I, I don't think any of them are particularly dynamic at the job. We are again at a point where you just want uh, a guy who's going to catch the ball effectively and, you know, be able to fall forward, ideally get your first down. They need something better than that. And they haven't recovered from the Adore Jackson thing still, but Batson, I think is a better version of Kinsey. I, I don't think he deserves to be in the mix right now as a wide receiver, but the punt return thing might get him there. I think it puts Rodgers in a good position. Well, and that means we're playing the numbers game. That's seven receivers on the roster is what that's pointing to, and then that's worth further discussion. Down if you've the road. got a returner, yeah, conceivable. If you've got a returner and McMath as the gunner, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, Taylor Lewan, among those not practicing today, did uh, did he chat with you at all? Going on or off the field, even if he, I don't know if he was out there at all during warm up. Well, he, he was um, he was okay. uh, in front in front of the garage that opens into the uh, weight room. Um, he was clear he was not practicing. He was with Derrick Henry. I walked by without stopping, and I said, "I thought no off days." And he said, <laughs> uh, "He said, go be in my mist." <laughs> <laughs> oh. Great line. Uh, yeah. He won yeah. that. Ex- he won yeah. that exchange. Uh, and he, he won the tweet this morning as well, retweeting the video, which we knew <laughs> he would have a good time with. Um, let, let's get into some offensive line discussion as our one big topic today, Paul. And uh, I certainly want Chad's thoughts on this as well, because it is hard to fully put into context the, the Titans' offensive line last season, given the musical chairs and the injuries, speaking of Lawan not being available, and the, the coaches changing personnel packages to make things work, which they certainly did. Tannehill was only sacked 23 times total, which is top 10 in the league. It ranks very high among teams with a winning record when you just analyze teams that won nine or more games and what their quarterback did or did not do. And the, those multiple injuries now see an offensive line that comes back healthy with a question mark at right tackle, but a question mark that I think the team's more confident in right now than where they left off at the end of last season. Um, They used a lot of two and three tight end packages in 2020 compared to 2019, just comparing the two years, and that affects the three wide receiver sets. We're tying in the seven wide receivers that could potentially be on a roster, the addition of Julio Jones and other... I mean, when we think about how good this offensive line could be, we're basing it off of 23 sacks allowed last year, and that's when they they desperately needed extra help on the line. A healthy line means Tannehill could be just as protected, if not more protected, and the distribution could be more wide receiver than tight end. A healthy Lawan means everything. Healthy Lawan means that you're not putting any help over there unless they're putting extra numbers over there and, and, and you're, you're picking up a blitz, right? Um, and, and that's conventional stuff that, are, that a running back or a tight end has to do. That's not lining somebody up next to Lawan because he's going to have problems. So that takes help out of the equation on the left side. 
when help was a major part of the equation on the left side after five or six games last year. Um, and, and when Baltimore figured out a big way to go at David Quesenberry in the playoff game, which is what a playoff team should be able to do to you if you're without your right tackle. So um, uh, that's, that's a huge deal. Now, uh, Kendall Lamb, um, who's a swing tackle, talked about himself yesterday, by the way, as a swing tackle. Did not talk about himself like he's a starting right tackle. That doesn't mean he's not going to be, but he's not thinking of himself that way at this time or Dylan Radens, or Ty Sambrello, who, by the way, uh, we, we've talked about not really knowing his injury. We're pretty sure he tore his ACL in that game. That would have been in November ahead of Bud Dupree's timetable, but not by a great deal. Um, so he would be an August return. Um, so uh, you're going to help on the right side, probably in passing situations against you know, better rushing teams and certainly against, you know, singular guys, or if miles Garrett's rushing from that side, um, you know, if, if a miles Garrett type is rushing from that side, you're, you're helping, um, any of those right tackles. And I think most teams in a league are helping a, a right tackle there. So I don't think you're doing anything kind of like you're talking about Hutton, anything beyond the norm for what an offensive line would have to do. The Titans are, reset back to normal which allows their five people for the most part or four or four and a half to run routes and that increases Tannehill's options and uh and and makes the weaponry more effective well and I think I think you know I think of the personnel changes that Arthur Smith had to had to do because of what happened up front we're we're going to see more three wide than too tight just because Todd Downing has Taylor Lewan back in the mix. And Dennis Kelly, who, who was very good under the circumstances last year, it's about the personnel that changed after Taylor got hurt. And now that he's back, I mean, consider this. It, you can make stats fit any narrative, really. But the numbers don't lie in this regard. The Titans, the 2,000-yard rusher and Derrick Henry, the Titans ran left 178 times for 772 yards. They ran to the right side. 172 times for 1,157 yards. So I think in terms of right tackle, and as much as they ran right with, with Henry, and that's not counting certain things that go behind Ben Jones and the, and the center guard triangle, but Paul, you get where I'm going with this. Can Kendall Lamb outpace Dylan Radins in the run game as much as the pass pro? Maybe early. You know, maybe early he can. I, I don't know. Uh, that's one of the big questions that's going to be answered here. And the other question, Hut, is, you know, on a given game plan, who are they more comfortable scheming up more for? You know, I think we're all presuming it's going to be Josh Reynolds on a week-to-week basis. I think some weeks it'll definitely be Josh Reynolds. But I think they'll find some games where where they find a role for Ferkser and, and find uh, weak inside linebackers that they think Ferkser can stretch or settle in front of to find, um, you know, easy first downs or easier first downs. And th- that they think that, um, you know, A.J. and Julio Jones will um, – you know, be able to, to, to stretch the field out of too wide with Ferkser settling in, in some of those seam spots in a different way than Josh Reynolds would be doing as the third wide. And, and we may see Ferkser snaps go up in that game and, and Reynolds snaps go down. I, I, I think it's important to remind people and to talk about it more 
that uh and, and this particularly for the fantasy audience mm-hmm. um you know it's a game plan team that's going to be different week to week and we could see josh reynolds have 11 catches one week and everybody's gonna uh get him in their fantasy lineup the next week and then he's gonna have two catches and everybody's gonna be like what the hell happened to josh reynolds <laughs> and it's not gonna be anything really about josh reynolds it's gonna be about you know uh, the Rams lineup versus the, the defensive lineup of the, of the next team on the schedule, right? Well, and I want to go yep. back to the offensive line uh, question Hutton threw out. Of course, Taylor Lewan being healthy, they're going to have to reach their full potential. That's going to have to happen. I'm curious, though, Paul, and I want your take on this also, Hutton. Uh, how much of that equation is Dylan Radins being the right tackle quickly uh, for them to reach full potential? I wonder how much of, the, of a factor that is with this offensive line, if they're really going to be what they want, it's going to take him asserting his spot in that lineup relatively quickly. Well, I, I mean, I think it depends on how good he is, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the obvious answer. If he is what they think he is, uh, you, you want to get him there and get him up to snuff and, and be playing um, kind of at your maximum potential with your maximum people as, as soon as you can. And uh, this is a guy they liked a lot that they feel like is going to have a well-rounded game and fit what they do. They drafted a guy for their scheme, much like they drafted Jack Conklin for their scheme, much like we hate to hear it. They drafted Isaiah Wilson Mm -hmm. for their their scheme. Um, Here's another one. And, uh, you know, it's up to Keith Carter and uh, Todd Downing. Come just poke your head in there for one second. Just, I got a little cancer spot it? there. Just, it's my show. Just poke your head in there and say hello. It's gonna cause no free shoutouts. No free shoutouts. Just poke and oh, say hi. Well, no free shoutouts. Oh. He's gonna pee on me. <laughs> pee on me huh? I'm not into that stuff. <laughs> He's not into that. <laughs> Paul may be no into it. Ta- Taylor's not into it. Paul may be into it. <laughs> he's, he's not. He's not into I, water. I sports. asked him not to pee on me. Not to pee on me. Those are, are very different uh, requests. Let's be uh, clear. Did you? Did you ask him about the asparagus? I did not ask. I did. I haven't had a lot of time to talk to the guy. That, that was the extent of the exchanges that I've had. But uh, that was very nice of him to pop on to yes. our airway. Uh, the, the, conveniently the, set up near the door. Great yeah. cameo. Great cameo. The, the, the cameo for sure. <laughs> hey, um, it has been great to have Regan McCrossan as our production assistant uh, yes. during the, the summer months. As we head into the end of the summer semester, Regan is headed back to Richmond. And we always do a final farewell uh, as the, the final segment for our production assistants. Uh, the ones we like. Well, and, and all three. <laughs> Just the ones we like. All That's three right, this summer have been excellent. Our first group with, with OutKick and OutKick 360. Um, and uh, we, we always say we give the endorsement. But with these three, and as Regan goes, we, we will say absolutely uh, recommend Regan for uh, appointment whenever she is ready for that job. She's been fantastic. Uh, I, I, we All three of us, and uh, I'll speak for myself, I'll really miss her. Uh, it, it's important that they do good work, but it's also important that they add to the vibe. And she was a lot of fun to have around. And it's important for us, the three of us have a lot of fun together on the air. Um, and Lance and Jacob and David are fun. And uh, Regan has been a lot of fun. And I say that in an ex- extremely complimentary way. Good luck. Thank you. We'll miss you. Please be in touch. Yeah, we hit the lottery with uh, interns this uh, this summer. And uh, Regan was great. She's going to be successful in whatever she does. 
You can follow her on Instagram, too. She may not approve you. Uh, we found that out uh, with people following her, but uh, feel free to do that. And she's going to do great work. Well, she's about uh, to get rich. She's going to do great work in field hockey this year at Richmond. Yeah, name, image, like you, uh, yeah. you can sponsor Regan this fall. That's right. Pump up spiders. She'll be on ESPN3. We will tweet out the schedule. We should have a watch party. Oh, yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. We should definitely have an Outkick 360 watch party around uh, a Richmond field hockey game at some point. Paul, I, right before Lawan popped on, I, I had this thought about the, the right tackle uh, idea in, in the battle. We'll know when the pads come on if this is a real competition. Just like in recent years where we thought we would see a competition, but nothing really panned out. I don't really know what to expect having not been out there. When the pads come on, I know you'll you'll see a lot more. But I get the sense that this is something that they're not going to determine until after all three preseason games because that's where Dylan Radins gets thrown into the fire and gets a lot of snaps, and that's where he can earn a starting role. Well, here's the thing that's both good and bad. We talked about this with Lawan, um, you know, spending his time taking a pee behind the thing and not being in many of these team periods. Right and left tackle are open. Um, and if, if uh, you know, Quesenberry's the third guy, Sambrilo, um, Vrabel said sooner rather than later. But there are two spots of work there with the first team. So I don't know how many hints we get about who's leading for right tackle if the two of them are pretty much starting right tackle, left tackle through training camp and the first preseason game, at least, right? We'll see how they're doing, but we're not going to get a hint as to who they're leaning towards starting if they're both starting, just one's at left. So, uh, you know, benefit of extra snaps, but not a benefit of extra information. Good reports all week, Chief. Appreciate it. Have a big weekend, uh, and we'll be following your coverage as well. We we do this again on Monday, and um, of course, enjoy the sports weekend as well. I'm, I'm assuming you saw the the news out of Indy, where Carson Wentz is out indefinitely with a foot injury. The Titans' odds of winning the division went up on FanDuel. Yeah, um, I didn't think he was magically going to be great, and uh, the every practice crucial there so yes. setback and what are the titans week five or week six if he's week, they uh, play if he, if he's week out. three week three week three yeah uh, who's the backup jacob eason is getting the starting reps right now so they're, they're going to sign up they're going to sure. sign a veteran yeah yeah i wonder if philip rivers is on the line yeah uh, that's a <laughs> that's a good question i didn't even think about yeah. that i'm trying to pull him out of retirement Paul, have a good weekend, man. We'll see you soon. Have a great weekend, Paul. Good work. Don't block the box. Do lock the lock. See you. I'll kick 360 back Monday.